Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. Every Monday night here on State of the Bay, we are live and local with news, conversation, and culture from this place we call home. Today, we're excited to bring you another climate special. We'll be hearing from California Attorney General Rob Bonta about the lawsuit he filed against the big oil giants, seeking to hold them accountable for their role in causing climate change. And then we'll dive into a discussion about the changes and trade-offs that may be needed to address climate change here in the Bay Area. And finally, we'll hear from local artist Coffrey J about why the climate movement needs more hip-hop. But first, this news. A little over a week ago, California's Attorney General Rob Bonta made headlines by suing several of the world's largest oil companies. The lawsuit claims that they misled the public by downplaying the risks posed by fossil fuels and that their actions have caused tens of billions of dollars in damage. It's a big move. California is seeking to hold these companies accountable. And to learn about it, we're going right to the source. We're very pleased to be joined now by the man who brought this suit on behalf of Californians, Attorney General Rob Bonta. So welcome to State of the Bay, Attorney General Bonta. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. So, Attorney General, several other states and municipalities have already filed suits seeking to hold the big oil companies accountable for climate change. So why did you decide to sue now on behalf of Californians? A couple of reasons. One, the urgency has significantly increased with the hot's getting hotter, the wet's getting wetter, the dry's getting drier, the, the massive uh, impacts and, and damage created by, by climate change and extreme weather. and the only path forward is is action. And also a new development in these cases where the U.S. Supreme Court recently denied an appeal by big oil, that allowed for our case to move forward in state court where we filed it. And so we're interested in progress, not process. And now we have a pathway to get to the merits quicker and efficiently and to hold big oil accountable. We are now the biggest geographic entity, the largest economy to sue big oil. We're about to be the fourth largest economy in the world. We're the largest state in the nation. So this case, in my view, is a game changer. It's a watershed moment. It's historic. It's unprecedented. And it is an important case for our future and for the people of California who should not be lied to and deserve the truth and should not allow big oil to uh, stick uh, them with the bill for the climate change deception big oil engaged in. And why is it advantageous to be able to keep this case in state court as opposed to in federal court? We want to be in state court because we're bringing state law claims on behalf of the state of California and state law claims are best heard and addressed in state court. The big oil defendants have wanted to move these cases into federal court. And we believe that state court is the appropriate venue and the Ninth Circuit agrees. Well, speaking of those big oil defendants, the lawsuit targets five companies, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron, as well as the American Petroleum Institute, which is an industry trade groups. Why target these companies when there are a number of industries and companies that have contributed to the climate crisis? These are the biggest players in the fossil fuel industry. And together, they represent a significant set of deceptive actions and decisions that form the basis of our case. 
they knew about climate change 50, 60, 70 years ago, and they lied about it. And they not just lied by uh, omission, by failing to, to tell the truth, they, they lied uh, by commission, by presenting things that they knew were untrue through articles and op-eds and reports by entities with good-sounding environmentally friendly names like the Global Climate Coalition to issue reports that undermined the climate science that they knew to be true. And the people of California do not deserve to be lied to. They deserve the truth. And they don't deserve to have to pay for the bills that big oil is sending them. This case is, is based on a very powerful principle, one of fairness that says you are responsible for your actions. And big oil must be responsible for theirs, the damage they caused, the pain they've inflicted on Californians, and we are here to hold them accountable. And the suit talks about how they continue to mislead the public about their efforts to reduce emissions. Can you talk about that aspect of the deception that you're alleging here? Yeah, basically that even today they continue to greenwash. They say that their fossil fuels are clean that they are environmentally friendly and that they are taking on climate change. All the opposite of what they're actually doing. And I know the lawsuit was only just filed and so there hasn't been a, a discovery process yet to look at all the evidence. But what evidence do you already have to back up the claims that you're making in, in the lawsuit about the deception? Our complaint is packed with evidence in great detail indicating dates and times when specific individuals and companies knew about climate change because of the great work of investigative reporters and others a lot of this has been uncovered already and so we don't need discovery to reveal what we already know then president of the American Petroleum Institute made remarks to industry leaders and talked about the impending global warming created by their fossil fuel products and that the temperatures will be increasing by the year 2000 uh, at a very high level that would create environmental uh, damage and destruction. And so this has been decades of damage, destruction, and deception. That's just one example. There's other examples of uh, industry commission studies, internal memos, internal speeches, marked up documents that all indicate the same, that they knew uh, with terrifying certainty where we would be today with respect to extreme weather, climate change, environmental damage and destruction. And they chose to inflict that upon the people of California and the world uh, so that they could profit to the tune of billions of dollars. And they profited $200 billion last year. They also knew that we could have gone down another pathway. They knew about carbon capture and they knew about clean energy pathways to the future. And they sat on those and did not pursue those, did not talk about those. And so we are holding them accountable. We're asking them to put uh, billions of dollars into an abatement fund to abate the public nuisance that they created, to pay for the damage that they are trying to push on to California taxpayers. And there are things that we are asking them to do through this abatement fund for every one of the, the challenges that we're facing for drought and for uh, flood and for superstorms and for sea rise and for wildfires. You know, when it comes to wildfires, they can pay for forest management 
and increase wildfire response for drought. They can pay for water storage and water distribution for uh, folks who are suffering from extreme heat, cooling centers for those suffering from dirty air, uh, clean air centers for sea rise, sea walls. So there's a lot that can be done. And we're asking big oil to pay for that mitigation, for that resilience, for that adaptation. How much do you expect the fund to, to raise? How much are you asking for in damages? And who would administer those funds? It will be determined in greater specificity as the case goes forward. But big picture, we're uh, currently estimating tens of billions of dollars and ever increasing. With every day, week, month, and year that the people of California have had to suffer because of big oil's climate change deception, the cost is going up. And so the big oil companies will all put money into this abatement fund. It'll be managed by the state of California as the plaintiff in this case who prevails and as a remedy is awarded an abatement fund and it will be invested in these mitigation and adaptation and resilience responses. And and this is something that's been done before with big tobacco, with the opioid industry, with the lead paint industry when they were sued and put money into an abatement fund to address the damage that they created. Attorney General Bonta, you talked about success with this case looking like a fund that could help mitigate some of the damages that Californians are are experiencing, the impacts of, of climate change. What else would success look like here? And then to the to big oil's lies. That's one of the major successes that we seek from this case. The end to their current greenwashing, an end to their climate science denial, an end to the front groups that they fund that deliberately and intentionally undermines the actual climate science by putting out alternative non-scientific-based views of climate change. An end to the op-eds and the advertisements and the false and deceptive claims that they continue to put out in the world that make people doubt climate science, that make people underestimate the urgency of climate change and its impacts that overstate the ability to address it. So we are seeking an end to the lies, a commitment to the truth going forward, and a fund that will pay for the damage that they cause instead of sticking Californians with the bill. Is there anything else you want to mention about this specific lawsuit that I haven't asked you about or another initiative that you have in in terms of addressing the climate crisis? Two things uh, about this case and then maybe a couple comments about addressing the climate crisis more broadly. One, as the biggest geographic entity and largest economy to enter this fight against big oil for their climate change deception and their lies, we invite others to, to join us. Other states should look at their own state laws and see if those laws have been violated as they have in California by big oil and hold big oil accountable. Also, you know, climate change is personal. It's personal to me. I'm reminded of the time my now 24-year-old daughter, when she was still in high school, talked to me and she said, Dad, I, I love our family and I want a family of my own someday, but I don't think I will because I don't think it's responsible to bring a new life into a dying planet. And my friends and I talk about that. We worry about that. There's a whole generation who have given up on their dreams to 
have children, to have a family because they don't want to put their children onto a dying planet. And that's tragic and unacceptable. And where we are today and, and where we are heading, if we don't make changes, was created by big oil and their lies and their deception, and they need to be held accountable. So those are two thoughts on this case. Broadly speaking, we're involved in other areas to address climate change, including our investigation into ExxonMobil for contributing to the global plastics pollution crisis and perpetuating the myth of recyclability of plastics, telling the world, it's okay, buy as much and use as much plastic as you like. It'll be recycled. And it's environmentally friendly. See, look at those chasing arrows. But the truth is, most plastic goes into landfill or is burned or is shipped overseas where it's burned or put into landfill or ends up in our rivers or oceans or beaches. And the petrochemical industry and ExxonMobil and others need to be held accountable for that. We're also suing 3M and DuPont and others for perpetuating and pushing out into the world very harmful forever chemicals known as PFAS. And just like big oil, they knew the health impacts and the damage created to uh, natural resources and to human beings of their product internally for decades, but continued to push their product out into the world, harming natural resources and people. And they need to be held accountable for that as well. So those are just two other examples of areas that we're working in. We are absolutely committed to protecting California's natural resources and our planet and our future. Attorney General Rob Bonta, thank you so much for explaining these cases, the initiatives that your office is working on, and for coming on State of the Bay. We really appreciate it. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. You're listening to State of the Bay, and this is our second climate special. This is Ethan Elkind, and you just heard my conversation with California's Attorney General Rob Bonta about his agency's lawsuit against big oil. And coming up next, we'll talk about how the Bay Area can address what is feeling more and more like a climate emergency, and we'll take your questions. That's right after the break, so stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay's second climate special. I'm Ethan Elkind. Later in this hour, you're going to hear from the founder of Hip Hop for Change about why the climate movement needs more hip hop. But first, let's talk about climate change as an emergency. Pick up nearly any newspaper, turn on the radio or TV, and there's likely to be a story about the devastation being caused by climate change. Just in the last two months alone, we saw wildfires in Hawaii, floods in Libya, and yet another hurricane ravaging the eastern United States. Here in the Bay Area, we're finally getting relief today from smoke from northern wildfires, which caused our air quality to nosedive last week, reminding us just how vulnerable we are to extreme weather events, even when they're hundreds of miles away. So with climate disasters hitting us with more power and greater frequency, it's no surprise that many of us feel like we're in the midst of a climate emergency. According to the Climate Emergency Declaration Organization, over 2,000 jurisdictions around the world have declared climate change to be an emergency, San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose among them. But are we acting like it? 
here tonight to look at what we here in the Bay Area can and should be doing to address a warming climate. I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Laura Feinstein, who is a Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director at SPUR, the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. Welcome, Laura. Hi, Ethan. And we're also pleased to be joined by Dr. Daniel Kamen, professor in the Energy and Resources Group and the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, as well as founding director of Berkeley's Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Ethan. How are you doing? Great to have you both with us. I'm very excited for this conversation. I also want to let you, our listeners, know that we want to hear from you as well. Do you feel like the climate crisis is an emergency that needs immediate attention? What do you think our cities and state should prioritize to mitigate climate change and related disasters? You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-TALK. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at org. So I mentioned all these Bay Area cities and many others around the world have declared a climate emergency. And normally an emergency emergency declaration would trigger some pretty significant action. But climate change is a slower moving kind of disaster. It's got occasional acute events that can reduce the sense of urgency among the public, arguably. So my first question to both of you, and Laura, I want to start with you, is whether you think we're doing enough to treat this like an actual emergency. Well, I mean, the short answer is we're not. I mean, you can look at any of the targets that the international uh, agencies as well as the state and the nation have set on climate change and we're sorely behind on meeting all of them. On the other hand, I would say um, there are some places like California that really are moving as fast as they can on making big progress on slowing down carbon emissions. So it's uh, it's one of those really complicated problems where, on the one hand, our targets tell us we have to move faster. And on the other hand, it feels like transforming the entire economy is going to take some time. So, Dan Cameron, let me ask you the same question. I mean, based on what Laura said, are, are we falling behind? Are we not doing enough? How are we how are we doing progress wise in, in addressing this crisis? Well, I mean, Laura's spot on. Um we can and we should go faster, but California is not an island politically or infrastructure-wise. And so while I'm disappointed in many of the steps we're doing that aren't more rapid, we're also doing relatively well given that California's emissions are small percentage, about 1% of global emissions. And even if we jump ahead, but our policies don't translate, it doesn't help. So what I like to think is that California needs to be the anti-Las Vegas. What starts here can't end here. And does that mean going more slowly than we could by ourselves? Yes. But it also means that we need to take a hard look inward where we have given too much of a free pass to fossil fuel companies. We've made excuses for not phasing out fossil gas, natural gas more quickly. We could have had earlier targets for only electric vehicles. There's a lot of things that we could and should do, but we're also trying not to become kind of an ideological or political island as much as it pains me and pains my kids that we're not going faster when we could. So, Dan, in other words, it sounds like we have this extra burden potentially here in the Bay Area and in California to really set a powerful example for the, for the rest of the world. Is that how you would view it? To some degree. I mean, there, there are things that we're doing quite well. I mean, last year when we had 
much more harsh weather in late August, September, because it was a much drier year. Um, we know that the fact that we have distributed solar around the whole state and the Bay Area really saved us from blackouts. Um, but we also know there are areas where we could be more aggressive. Many people point their finger at the Public Utilities Commission for being too cozy with certain fossil fuel companies. We don't give enough subsidies for going green. And in particular, we don't give enough benefits and subsidies to low-income and marginalized communities that we've left out of the story for way too long. So it is a partnership, but it's also one where we are literally leaving $20 bills on the ground uncollected because clean energy, clean transportation, better waste management are all actually areas to save money and we still act like they're areas that cost us money. So still some low-hanging fruit that we're Absolutely. leaving unpicked here. Well, Laura Feinstein is Spurs Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director. It's your job, as I understand it, to think about what priorities the Bay Area should have in addressing climate change. So what are some of the actions that Spur is focusing on, given the urgency here? Well, that's a great question. And I absolutely agree with Dan. I think that many of the big initiatives that have worked on climate change have started at the local and the state level and then have translated to a bigger scale. So we look at the Bay Area as an opportunity to push the envelope on what is considered politically possible on climate action. One of the big things that we're really focused on is um, the fact that buildings emit about 25% of the carbon emissions in the state. So that means the appliances that you use in your home that burn natural gas, um, the electric lights that might be sourcing some of their electricity still from fossil fuel burning plants. So buildings, of course, are under the jurisdiction largely of our local government. So the local government has a lot to say about how they operate. And one of the exciting things that's been happening in the Bay Area is that the local government has been embracing this idea of more climate-friendly buildings. And in particular, the um, Bay Area Air District passed some rules earlier this spring that mean that um, when people's old gas-fired uh, water heaters and furnaces start to break, they're going to be switching them out for climate-friendly, zero-pollution versions of those appliances. All right. Well, it seems like buildings are definitely an area where we need to focus on. Dan, as someone who isn't just a renewable energy expert, but you've also worked in government, you know, I think you have a pretty unique perspective on this. What are some of the areas that you think are ripe for action to address this urgent situation, particularly here in the Bay Area? Yeah, well, I mean, Laura really highlighted some of them, but there's there's so many. I mean, I think we could probably each do lists all day long. So some of the areas that are kind of that sweet spot of not just using the Bay Area as kind of a guinea pig, but making it so we all benefit would be, for example, to take advantage of what we now know about fossil gas. And that is, despite a lot of claims from the industry, fossil gas or natural gas systems leak. And they leak to a degree that on a greenhouse gas base basis. In many places, they're actually as bad as coal. Now, I wouldn't switch them out for coal, but one of the opportunities where cities in the Bay Area have already led and the state really could push much further to follow up would be to say, let's start giving an incentive every time a home comes off of natural gas, fossil gas, or an incentive to build homes that are pure electric in the first place. And there's been a lot of rhetoric and pushback, but that's an area where we can 
save money, save greenhouse gases, and actually make air quality far better, in particular for low-income areas. So that's one write-off. Another one is that President Biden has established a goal to make the power sector carbon-free by 2035. And this doesn't get a lot of attention because a lot of people think it's just too hard to do. But a place like California that earlier this year hit over 100% of all of our electricity from renewables, admittedly during the spring at kind of an easier time of year, but by ramping up the amount of storage, by subsidizing and incentivizing low-income communities to build storage in, to make mass transit not only better, but also access to electric vehicles, even if you don't own it, whether it's a Zip EV or whether it is a city car EV, making sure the rideshare companies accelerate their goals to go all electric. These are all places where, just as you from Laura before, that the opportunity to push ahead at the local level will not only set a key example, but actually it will generate more jobs, save us money, and are things that uh, our elected officials can actually campaign on. And thankfully, California is a place where good climate policy does win at the box office. And that's not true, the ballot box. And that's not true everywhere, but here it is. Well, and Dan, staying with you, we have a uh, email from Jennifer in Berkeley who writes, you mentioned that the state's target of reaching 100% renewable energy by 2045. Will getting all of our electricity from wind and solar power or other renewable sources raise the price of electricity? Be curious, Dan, what your response would be to that question. Actually, it'll lower the price, um, which is surprising to some. But since 2021, Bloomberg News and others have been reporting that it's now cheaper to build a new renewable energy power plant, whether it's solar or wind or geothermal or small-scale hydro or biomass, if it's clean. But it's cheaper now to build a new plant than to simply operate an existing plant. And I know that comes as a shock to some, but this has been proven true over and over again. And so getting to that 100% target, even with the state's much more aggressive new higher goal. So we peak in our energy use of around 50,000 megawatts, 50 gigawatts. Um, and the state now wants by 2030 to see, or 2035 to see up to 80 six gigawatts on the grid, largely to uh, to meet industrial need and that for by then 100 um, percent electric fleet for new vehicles. And so this is a place where clean energy is actually going to buy us jobs, reduce our energy bills and will allow us to put more money back into low income communities that have received the short end of the stick for decades. Part of that low hanging fruit, potentially. So this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing how the Bay Area can respond to our climate crisis. We're joined by Spurs, Laura Feinstein, and UC Berkeley's Dan Kamen. Do you have ideas or questions about actions to help minimize the effects of a warming planet? What steps have you taken to reduce your carbon footprint? We'd love to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Well, Laura, talking about low-hanging fruit, 
I'm curious of the work that Spur is involved in. What are some of those actions where they really wouldn't necessarily require sacrifice if we moved more quickly? You know, what Dan was mentioning about actually creating jobs, saving people money. Are there areas that you're working on that feel like are particularly beneficial for people if we really had the political will to move them forward? I think some of the areas that would be incredibly politically beneficial would be just to keep moving forward on more public transit and better public transit, which I know is something you've been a big advocate for, Ethan. Um, You know, electric vehicles are going to be great and they're going to transform a lot of how people get around. But um, when it gets down to it, you know, public transit is really the lowest carbon way for people to get around. And on top of that, we need um, people to have housing in places where they can walk to that public transit. And so those are places where the technology is there. Um, the cost savings are there, but the real challenge is um, the political obstacles, that it's incredibly hard, overwhelmingly hard to build new housing, especially apartment buildings close to transit because the local neighbors more often than not oppose it. And that makes it really difficult for us to get uh, the emissions down from people just having to travel long distances to work and school. And Dan Cameron, I know this is something that you've modeled, actually, to, to Laura's point here about the carbon footprint of different areas throughout the San Francisco Bay Area by zip code. Can you talk about some of the work you've done and your findings on this question of, of housing and, and carbon footprint? Yeah, so we built a, a website, actually, at the request of then Governor Schwarzenegger, and it's uh, one anyone can look up and use. It's a carbon resource footprint calculator tool. It's called Cool Climate. Dot org or coolclimate.berkeley.edu. Um, and basically what you find is that the carbon footprint is highest in the most affluent neighborhoods. And that's probably not a surprise to anybody. Um, the rich drive more, have more packages delivered, have bigger homes, more outlets, more things. And so one of the areas where we find there's huge savings, exactly what Laura mentioned. That is that making public transit more convenient to more neighborhoods is a climate and a social justice win. And one of the real challenges, and this is one where uh, people's, uh, I guess you get people's uh, hackles up, and that is uh, the Bay Area has consistently zoned for single family housing. And that's really uh, a thinly veiled effort to keep low-income, often minorities, out of desirable areas where there's better resources. And so one of the real challenges is look, taking a look at, for example, European cities, where one of the things that we all love when we go to travel there is that you see everyone mixed together in not every neighborhood, but many more than here, where we have very, very segregated neighborhoods. And so Social and racial integration is a, is a recipe to invest more in areas that we would otherwise avoid. And that's one of the things that if you go in the carbon footprint calculator, you'll see really clear examples of. Essentially, the redlining that people like to say is done, um, which is not done, meaning areas where essentially minorities were not permitted uh, to, to buy or lease property. But these are areas where now we have essentially carbon redlining and it's not good for infrastructure. It's not good for social cohesion. And it is a place where the climate and the carbon story tells a bigger story of social inequality in the state. 
So we've talked a lot about trying to reduce our emissions, but we also, to treat this like an emergency, have to worry about climate impacts as well. I mentioned just the wildfire smoke as one of those impacts potentially linked to climate change that we had to deal with this past week. We have a, a, a listener in San Francisco, Janet, who writes, I read recently that the Bay Area faces the most direct risk of disastrous flooding due to sea level rise of any region in California. Can your guests talk about how soon we might see that kind of flooding and what solutions are being proposed? And Laura, let me direct that question to you. Right. So absolutely. The Bay Area by far is um, the most at risk from sea level rise of any area in California because we have such a you know big shoreline um, around the Bay. And um, that means that we are actually already possibly starting to experience more flooding um, that's being exacerbated by sea level rise. Although, you know, sea level rise, when you look at how fast it will happen, it follows this curve where it kind of goes up really gradually for the next few decades. And then around 2050, it really starts to spike. So we're not seeing the worst effects yet, but we have seen, um, you know, some inches of sea level rise in the Bay Area. And what that means is it doesn't mean that, you know, neighborhoods are now sitting underwater. What it means is that when there is a big rainstorm or there is a um, a big storm that causes um, that causes big surges of the sea level, it means that um, water backs up, water backs up more in neighborhoods. And so, for example, this last winter, we saw these unprecedented big storms, right? Likely to some degree exacerbated by climate change. And that water is trying to run off to a bay that is somewhat higher than it used to be. And so that water doesn't run off as fast as it used to. So um, I think what will likely happen is over the coming decades, um, we're going to see more of that nuisance flooding, that during the winter, during big storms, more neighborhoods will um, will be flooded more and more regularly. And it will start to get to a point where people don't want to live in some of those places anymore. And Dan, anything you want to add about sea level rise and what we should be doing now to address it? Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, the, the challenge here, as Laura said, is it is sort of a creeping problem, literally, when you think about these king tide events and the inundating parts of the bay, um, East Palo Alto and a variety of areas, you know, we, we, we see the damage. Um, at least we see the damage on those, those events. But the, the issue is that, of course, what sea level rise is really doing is destroying infrastructure. And building back smart is something that we're not very good at because we want to do what appears to be least cost. We generally don't take climate change into account. We just look at what contract is going to be the least cost. And so one of the longer term political strategies is to think not just about what is the market price of carbon? California has a cap and trade system to uh, to make bigger polluters, over twenty five thousand pounds of greenhouse gas emissions, pay for those for those rights. But the, the the interesting, challenging point is that can California take another big step, and that is to adopt something called a social cost of carbon that reflects not the market price. I don't know if many of us think that the capitalist market is going to solve a capitalist problem, which is our overconsumption. But the social cost of carbon reflects the damage to ecosystems and particularly the damage to low-income and marginalized people. And so one of the big opportunities for us is to actually put our put our checkbook where our mouth is and begin to price those things. And in that case, we would look differently at the way we invest in re- and rebuilding 
around the Bay. We would also think differently about undergrounding transmission lines and how we would respond to issues like the Paradise Fire. And so that is a longer term change, but it's one of the areas where the Bay Area that is taking a long term look at climate change could actually get ahead of the curve. And while other communities decades from now would be scrambling and saying they don't have the money, if California could really put this in gear, we would be able to start making those decisions far more effectively now. So longer term, but it is exactly one of the reasons why we live in this area, because we are thinking about the environment, not just for ourselves tomorrow morning, but also for our kids. Absolutely. Well, this is State of the Bay on local public radio 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and tonight we're discussing how the Bay Area can respond to our climate crisis. We're joined by Spurs, Laura Feinstein and Dan Cammon of UC Berkeley. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at org. Well, I want to pause and play a clip here that relates to this discussion. This is comedian Mark Marin in a Netflix stand-up comedy special. Let's hear this. The reason we're not more upset about the world ending environmentally is I think you know, all of us in our hearts really know that we did everything we could. You know, we really, <laughs> right? I mean, we really did. We, we brought our own bags <laughs> to the supermarket. Yeah, that's about it. Always good to have a, a, a little humor when we're talking about this otherwise challenging subject. But I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts, both of you, on this underlying point of how much focus should we be putting on making changes at an individual level versus systematic action? And Laura, let me go to you first on that one. So <laughs> that quote made me laugh as much as anybody else. But I don't actually agree with Mark Marin. You know, the world is not going to end because individuals didn't bring their bags to the store. You know, if the world ends, which I don't think it will, um, it'll really be because our governments failed us. And that's who has the responsibility to make big systemic change. Um, so, you know, I really feel like it's of an individual's responsibility to participate in those bigger social changes. So, you know, if you're getting offered a subsidy to put solar panels on your roof and you can do it, go for it. You know, participate in these big social changes that the government's asking you to do. Mm -hmm. But don't put it all on yourself that you're the one killing the environment. Um, you know, if there's something that you really should get out and do, I would say get out and go to your local city council meeting. The next time they're having a hearing about the cli their climate action plan or any kind of new sustainability plan, get out there and tell them that you support climate action and you're willing to accept some trade-offs for it. Mm -hmm. That's really where we have to lean in is making sure that we're participating in a community and a social movement. Well, Dan, I do want to hear from you, but we've got a couple callers and just a few minutes left. So let me just go to the phone lines here. First, we have Paula calling in from Albany. Paula, welcome to State of the Bay. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call at the end of your show. Yeah, quick question. Uh, we've been early adopters of both rooftop solar and um, electric vehicles. We've had an EV for about six years now. And um, it seems to me that very few people are aware of the really dire state of the charging systems. And I'm not just talking about Tesla that has a network, but the network to support the um, charging of electric vehicles is... Um, the apps don't work. They're very few and far between outside of urban areas. 
And um, on top of that, the chargers themselves are not universal, like a gas mm-hmm. pump would be. So you can't just charge your leaf at a Tesla station or whatever. And um, I just don't hear anything about that. What is happening with that network, and how can yeah. they get that up and going? Great question. Because they're Paula, not going to sell any cars otherwise. <laughs> absolutely. It's a huge challenge. Dan, what are your thoughts about EV charging infrastructure here? Well, she's absolutely right. And and there is good news on this one, thankfully. First, electric vehicle sales are not only up, but they're up above forecast. And that's a good sign. And people are putting up with with substandard access to charging, in particular for people that don't own their own home and charge in their garage. The good news is that in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there is funding to do what President Biden has been saying, and that is to build half a million charging stations around the country. So the upside of this is that while it's not available for the caller today, it is being built right now, and it's thankfully being built with an eye to make EV lease or ownership far easier for people who don't own a garage where they put their own charging in. So in some ways, I would say come back in two years. Um, That's sort of a lame answer, but it's not surprising given how slow the initial growth of EV use was that we really left it to the Elon Musks and other, and now finally we're really catching up. And so I actually expect really big things on this, not just in urban areas, but in rural areas as well. But there's no question, we could and should have gone faster on this. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Paula, for that question. Laura, we've just got about less than a minute left. So I'm going to ask you if you have anything you want to say on electric vehicles or any closing thoughts as we think about what the Bay Area can do to treat climate change like an emergency. Well, I mean, I do, I do think I, that uh, Governor Newsom put out some pretty ambitious goals about more EV charging just a few days ago that should hopefully help with the problem that Paula is bringing up. I mean, for sure, the fa- who would have expected anything less of Elon Musk than that he would have like his own different charger from everybody mm-hmm. else, right? <laughs> so we are going to have to solve that one. Um, what should uh, the Bay Area be thinking about going forward? I mean, I think that... Um, the Bay Area should really be leaning in on the places where local government has authority. So that means um, things like building more housing close to transit, means building emissions, it means supporting our public transit, which is really suffering mm-hmm. right now. Those are the places where local government can really um, make a big difference and set a precedent for elsewhere. Absolutely. Well, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank you both so much for joining us. That was Dr. Laura Feinstein, Sustainability and Resilience Policy Director at SPUR, and Dr. Dan Kamen, Professor in the Energy Resources Group at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us for this segment. Thank you. Thank you. It was great being here. And coming up after the break, you're going to hear my conversation with local activist and artist Kafri J about why the climate movement could use more hip hop. We'll be right back. Everyone matters. Everybody's got some work to do now. You just search and choose how to pick a plan of action first. Move out the science is clear just to search the tools now. So many seconds as precious as the essence of your child's future. Do you not help us, yo? Left your privilege. You gotta get the message. It ain't up to the poor on earth to stop the wreckage, yo. Let's keep it real. They burning down the forest, poisoning the ocean, lambs to the slaughter, tribes being murdered just fighting for clean water. It ain't no time to waste if you're trying to see tomorrow. If you ain't fighting. 
see now that I might need to borrow your two hands and maybe your two ears to teach you a few things. The planet is too dear, so tell them what you think. The deadline's too near. Yeah. If you think environmentalism and hip-hop don't mix, you need to get to know our next guest. Coffrey J is a longtime community organizer, founder and former executive director of Hip Hop for Change, the founder of a new nonprofit called Hip Hop for the People, and a consultant that helps businesses incorporate hip hop into their programs. He performed the song you just heard as part of an international concert for climate action. So welcome to State of the Bay, Coffrey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, just giving a little bit of your social capital, your platform, the hip hop culture. I appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. So, Coffrey, climate change isn't a typical subject matter for most hip-hop artists. I think it's safe to say that, but it is for you. And in fact, you co-authored an opinion piece for Newsweek last year entitled, What Does the Climate Movement Need to Succeed? More Hip-Hop. So can you explain why you think that is? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people, when you're not of the culture of hip-hop, you're viewing hip-hop through the lens of media, right? Three companies on it, 90% of hip-hop. And of course, these narratives are very accessible, but in the community of hip hop, you know, communities that are mostly marginalized, people of color that are surrounded by these environmental pollutants, toxic waste sites. I'm from Hunters Point, San Francisco specifically. So a lot of the hip hoppers I heard when I was growing up were talking about things like the Navy shipyard, you know, uh, we're talking about environmentalism, also speaking in relation to police and different interactions that we have in our hood. The environment tends to be a little bit larger in scope for the ways we rock about it. But I feel like until we start centering the most marginalized people, instead of focusing on polar bears, I love polar bears, don't get me wrong, but I feel like that talking about polar bears is the easy way to get around putting toxic fun sites in Black neighborhoods. And I feel like the the structures that allow us to destroy the world are the same structures that allow us to relegate people to second-class citizenry. So if we can put these marginalized voices that are rapping about environmentalism, I think we can make a lot more headway in this environmental movement. And not only that, uh, environmentalism is getting whiter and it's getting older. And if we're going to galvanize and catalyze the youth, we're going to have to use the strongest organizing force they have. That is hip hop, undeniably. Mm-hmm. Well, given all the injustices and issues that you're trying to correct and address, What caused you specifically to focus on climate justice as one of the priority areas for your your organization? I I like to consider myself to be a pro-Black activist. (laughs) I want Black people to survive. You know, we have high mortality rates during childbirth. We have higher rates of asthma, diabetes, blood pressure. So, you know, if I want to save the most Black people I possibly can from here to the Cape of South Africa, climate change is the biggest destroyer of black lives, I believe. Uh, I believe a lot of the issues that we have surrounding climate change are intersected with racism, right? We can't be destroying places in these third world countries, quote unquote, um, without having little care for them, uh, you know, as black and brown people, extracting those resources, creating huge systems of linear consumption. And I think a lot of that is based on apathy uh, and no care for black lives. So this has been something that's been integral to me. Uh, I, you know, cut my teeth as one of the first black city coordinators at Greenpeace and learned grassroots fundraising. I broke into to do coal fire power plant in Nashville, North Carolina, as well as shutting down freeways and protesting for black lives. So I am an activist uh, and the most pressing issue in the world is the climate. Absolutely. Well, and you mentioned that the environmental movement historically associated with older 
whiter leadership. How do you see hip hop playing a role in getting youth more organized around issues like climate change and climate justice? Well, the youth are organizing. These young people are shutting down the streets, playing hip hop in San Francisco, organizing high schools and schools. I feel like my biggest goal as the kind of hip hop OG in my 40s now has been to try to validate these young people's patterns of organizing to these mostly white environmental organizations. Just be like, yo, I am that bridge saying, hey, hip hop is the thing that's working. Here are the young people that need your paychecks, need your support. Um, we just need to like empower them, be the wind under the wings, and we need to get out of their way. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear messages or, or ways that you've used hip hop that have been successful at galvanizing or educating youths around what it's going to take to address uh, climate change. I- yeah, well, shout out to Kennelly from Parks, California. I think that was the coolest thing that we did at Hip Hop for Change, my former organization, is we had our environmental summer camp. Kids would come out to the woods, uh, for example, Candlestick Regional Park uh, in Hunters Point, where I'm from, or Double Rock. If you go out there, there's wind barriers that have uh, graffiti murals of sandpipers and ground squirrels. And we had these kids out there not only learning about the environment, but they learned how to break dance, how to rap, how to do graffiti. And then they were able to use these practices to actually engage with the information. So we had one young girl at our summer camp. She was rapping about gardener snakes and skin shedding. And she was kind of equating her struggles to being a snake in the world, trying to be loved. You know, it's really cool like that. You know, not only that, we were able to throw the largest environmental hip hop show last year in the nation. We're at the Presidio Memorial Lawn with D Smoke, lots of rappers, lots of graffiti artists. And we had about 5,000 people out there uh, engaging with local nonprofits that work in the, the environmental field, you know, spreading that information and actually seeing young brown people rap and break dance. And shout out to Baykeeper. They put some money down to take boats out in the estuary learn about the pollution, and they made a really dope music video relaying the information about needing to save the estuary, just basically doing the same environmental stuff that everybody does, but putting them in hip-hop practices. It seems like a lot of what you're able to do is really raise awareness around environmental issues. But in terms of action and changes on the ground, what are some of the things that you would like to see happen, particularly in frontline communities that are bearing the brunt of, of climate impacts? Absolutely. You know, with this whole Black Lives Matter movement um, that has caused so much change, you know, we call it the Great White Awakening that, you know, Black Lives Matter got a lot of money. ACLU got a lot of money. But during that time, a lot of these local arts orgs, local BIPOC ran orgs are going belly up. A lot of Black arts orgs are really underfunded when Black arts is the strongest organizing thing we have. So I think that's the one thing that I want people to know is we've got to look past the green pieces. And I'm not hating on Greenpeace or any of these big organizations, but there's a lot of these young people that are on the ground. They have the best methodologies for reaching people, and they're so underfunded. They're so underrecognized. So I just hope people start supporting these young brown people that have stars in their eyes and the right solutions. Well, when you were leading Hip Hop for Change, you organized an annual environmental equity summit. Will you be organizing something like that again, or are there other events that you're working on now? Yeah, so I've been really focusing on health and wellness. To be quite honest, I've been very disillusioned about the ability for our body politic in this country to save us. We lost Roe versus Wade. I, I don't see a George Floyd justice bill happening. And recently, I've been throwing health and wellness summits, which a major part of that is environmentalism. Uh, so uh, the next show, I'm really excited about. Baby Hunters Point, September 30th at the Ruth Williams Memorial Opera House. 
We got the two biggest youth performers in the Bay. We also have live breakers, graffiti artists, but it's a health and wellness summit. So we're not just giving backpacks and school supplies. We're giving 5,000 articles of clothes, journals, water bottles. We also have barbers, braiders, as well as Mission Health and Emoji Health coming with colorectal screens, vaccinations, and everything. We're calling on cars. And I, I would hope that a lot of these environmental organizations that want to reach out to black and brown population, you don't get brown people on the email list. I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Coffee mentioned it's easy to get disillusioned with our political system and certainly the news around climate change can be stressful or demoralizing. What leaves you most hopeful when you're in- engaging in this work? Oh, I don't do this for hope, really. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a black activist and, you know, I'm not a betting man either to bet on white populations in places like San Francisco after Local Law 30, which relegated us to five neighborhoods. I don't bet on white people as a social group on voting for black people not to be 37 percent of the unhoused people in San Francisco. I don't do this because I have hope that uh, we haven't already hit some tipping point and all the methane hydrates are about to just free themselves up from the bottom of the ocean and create this crazy runoff. I don't do this for hope. You do not fight wars because you think you'll win. You fight them because it's the right thing to do. And if Ida B. Wells and Megger Evers could do what they did, then I can stand in these white neighborhoods doing grassroots work, advocating and dedicating my lives to making sure my own daughter has an easier time in this really gilded, really liberal, not progressive city of San Francisco. Well, Coffrey J., I appreciate your candor. I appreciate you doing what you think is right and it's an important fight. It's Coffrey J., founder of the new nonprofit Hip Hop for the People. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And please go to hiphopforthepeople.org, hiphopforthefuture.org. All right, we'll include a link to that on our webpage. Thanks again so much. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We hope you'll join us next Monday at 6 when we'll talk about Gen Z voting. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney. It was engineered by David Kwan. And D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. You're going to hear a rebroadcast of my guest hosting of Your Call coming up next. So you're going to get an extra hour of me following this program. Program. So good night and thanks so much for listening. Join us for Your Legal Rights Wednesday evenings at 6. Host Jeff Hayden and guests cover a wide variety of legal topics and issues, from tax tips to landlord-tenant issues, discrimination and workers' rights on the job, as well as broader constitutional issues. That's Your Legal Rights every Wednesday evening at 6, here on 91.7 KALW San Francisco Bay Area, and online at KALW.org.